Appreciate this good number being out this afternoon, all the members of the Pippin congregation that are, are back. We're grateful to you for coming, and I uh, want to join in expressing appreciation for the good meal that we had, and I'm fairly confident that surely all the men did the cooking since this is Mother's Day. Wouldn't that be right? I'll see all of you that nodded up on the front row after the service, at the invitation. <laughs> we'll take your confession for lying for those that did. But uh, it was a good meal, and we appreciated it, and it was enhanced by our spending some time together in fellowship, continued fellowship. Don't, uh, don't talk about the meal as being fellowship as opposed to we're having fellowship right now. You know, and uh, so the meal is just an extension of that in a casual and a social fashion. But we did have a good meal, and we enjoyed it a great deal. Somebody asked me if I got plenty, and I said, well, if it wasn't, it was my own fault. And so now you have the challenge of trying to stay awake. I told Brother Rogers a while ago, I get to put you to sleep now, and then at 6 o'clock I'm going to go around the room and put them to sleep. Traveling anesthesiologist. You know, when I was I got out of high school, I really did want to be an anesthesiologist. I wanted to put people to sleep. I got my wish, be careful what you ask for. I just didn't get it the way I thought I would. But we are glad all of you are here, and those of you that are visiting, we appreciate you coming over and supporting this meeting. And uh, as we mentioned this morning, we have the high honor of being able to worship God together, and that's the most important thing. Now, in Genesis chapter 3, we all recognize that that is, records the entrance of sin into the world. The word Genesis is appropriate for that book because it is a book of beginnings. It records the beginning of the created world, universe, and everything that is in it. It records the beginning of the home the beginning of nations, and the beginning of sin, and we might even say the beginning on earth of the scheme of redemption as it begins to unfold. But in Genesis chapter 3, we read in verse 8 that they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and Eve hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord called to Adam and said, Where art thou? And Adam said, That I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Now you keep reading and the Lord asked him, Who told thee that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree in the midst of the garden? But I want us to think now, God asked Adam a question in verse 9 when he said, Where art thou? And also in verse 11. But... <clears throat> It's one of those occasions where God did not ask the question from Adam in order to gain information. God knew where Adam was at and Eve were at. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 13 says, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, for all things are naked and open before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. In Proverbs chapter 15, and I believe it's about verse 13, we read that the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the good and the evil. And so God was not trying to gain some information from Adam. The, this is an occasion that, like we read about in other places in the Bible where a question was asked of an individual in order for that individual's benefit. Uh, you remember in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asked the disciples, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Well, he knew. John tells us that he knew what was in man. And so he did not ask again to try to learn for himself, what, what's the opinion of the people about me? 
And then he turned that question, the reason that he asked it, no doubt, is after they had given the various answers, he said, who do you say that I, the Son of Man, am? And that forced upon those men the obligation, if you will, the opportunity, if you will, to make their own confession. Now, they didn't stay true to it. They were, they were weak in their knowledge and faith. But, but nevertheless, they made that, Peter made that great confession on that occasion. And so here are some instances where a question was asked, but it wasn't asked for God's benefit, but for Adam and Eve's benefit. And what I want us to do this afternoon is I want to think about that little simple question, where art thou? And think about some things in regard to that question. In the first place, for instance, that question was what we might call an awakening or an arousing question. It was intended to cause Adam and Eve as well to look and think about, look where you are. Adam, where are you? Now, verse 8 says that they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. I would suggest that that implies that this is not the first time this has happened. How did Adam and Eve know this was the voice of God coming in the midst of the garden? It may well be that this had happened on other occasions. How long, how much time passed between the creation of Adam and Eve recorded in two, chapters 1 and 2 and this sin in chapter 3 we're unable to say definitively. Now over in John chapter 8, Jesus accuses Satan of being a liar and a murderer from the beginning. And if he has record to his work here in the Garden of Eden, then that places his work back near the beginning, back near the creation. But exactly how much time has passed, so far as I know, nobody knows. So it may well have been that on other occasions Adam and Eve had heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden. Adam recognized that voice and he went and hid himself. Never before had he had to do that. Never before had he had reason or occasion to do that for he had no reason to be afraid before now. And so here is a question that is intended to make Adam stop and look. Look where you are, Adam. You're hiding over in the midst of the trees from your Lord and God. Look where you are. And surely that is something that all of us need to do from time to time is stop and examine our spiritual condition. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul says, verse 5, examine yourselves, prove your own selves, whether you be in the faith. Know you not that the Lord Jesus is in you except you be reprobates? One of the difficult things to get people to do is to stop and look at themselves in the mirror of God's Word and get individuals to see themselves as they really are. In fact, it can be hard for us to do that on a personal basis. You see, <clears throat> my faults and my sins don't ever appear as serious as yours. You're stubborn. I'm a person of conviction. But I need to see my sins and see myself as I really am. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, in verse 28, Paul said, So let a man, let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. How many brethren today, I'm talking about our brethren now, how many brethren today in congregations of the Lord's church 
have eaten the Lord's Supper in a stupor. It's what we always do. The plate passes, the cup passes, and we eat of it, we drink of it, but it's become rote. It's become our routine, a ritual. And as we prepare to eat that Lord's Supper, as we participate in it, and as we conclude it, we never really stop to look at ourselves and examine ourselves. The church at Corinth was having that very problem, and that's why in verse 30 of that same chapter, Paul says, For this cause not a few among you are weak and sickly, and not a few sleep. And I simply would ask you this afternoon, you've eaten the Lord's Supper today, did you during that communion of the body and blood of Christ examine yourself? In Luke chapter 17, or rather Luke chapter 15, in verse 17, after the prodigal son had gone off into the far country, wasted his substance in riotous living, your Bible says that he came to himself. That must have been a very sobering occasion. I know that's just a parable. I know that's something that Jesus is telling for sake of illustration. But if you go back and think about that event and think about how that can and does happen in the lives of people, it's a very, isn't it a very sobering thing all of a sudden to realize? Where you, do you remember before you obeyed the gospel when it dawned on your heart and mind, I am lost. I am outside of Christ. And if I step through that veil of death into eternity, I am lost. This question on the part of the Lord was intended to awaken and arouse in Adam and Eve an appreciation of their condition. Look where you are. God through the prophet Haggai in chapter 1, verse 5 and verse 7 says in both of those places, consider your ways. And so he asked the question, where art thou? in order to awaken and arouse in Adam an appreciation and an awareness. Look where you are, hiding from me in the trees. But I would suggest in the next place at that question, where art thou? In close association with that is a convicting question. Adam, look where you are. Who told you you were naked, Adam? Have you eaten of that tree in the midst of the garden? And of course, God knew they had. But it was important for Adam and Eve to recognize that what they had done was the sin that it in fact and indeed was. There's that convicting question. I think about... Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. And there is a man who was as zealous and sincere for his convictions and traditions as a person could be. He told Agrippa, as we mentioned this morning, 26, Acts 26, 9, I verily thought I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And he did. And he was willing to journey far and endure inconvenience and expense for the sake of seeking out anybody that pledged allegiance to the Lord Jesus, to find them, to bring them back to Jerusalem, to be persecuted and even put to death. 
Bible students know that in Acts 7, he was the one, the young man, that watched and took care of the garments of those who stoned Stephen. And what a dagger to his heart it must have been whenever the Lord, in that bright, blinding light on the road to Damascus, to Saul at least, spoke to him and said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And his response, of course, was, Who art thou, Lord? And when the Lord answered and said, Jesus of Nazareth, whom thou persecutest, how that must have stabbed him in his heart. To realize that instead of honoring God, instead of helping God and the cause of God, he had actually been God's enemy. It's no wonder then that when Ananias is sent to him in Damascus that he is fasting and praying for a period of about three days. Evidence of his repentance. And then you think about those people on the day of Pentecost who Peter says, you have taken and by wicked hands and crucified and slain. And in Acts 2 verse 36 he said, Let all the house of Israel know that God hath made that same Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And then you know the text, but think about it for a minute. Verse 37, When they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. The truth, the reality of what they have done in helping to bring about the crucifixion of the Son of God. Their Messiah. That light dawns into the darkness of their mind and they know. Men and brethren, they say, what shall we do? The question is intended to arouse in Adam the knowledge of where you are and the knowledge of your sin. And while that is not a pleasant experience, it is essential in conversion. To be made aware and appreciative of the depth of our sin. And whether a person is being converted and initially coming to Christ to become a child of God or as a child of God needing to be restored to have that light dawn upon the darkness of the mind to be aware that I am lost and undone in sin is essential. You remember Isaiah <clears throat> in the year that Uzziah died, Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah had that heavenly vision, saw the Lord high and lifted up. And Isaiah saw the sinfulness of sin in himself and his nation. As he saw that heavenly vision and the glory of the Lord, his answer was, Woe is to me, for I am a man of unclean lips and dwell among a people of unclean lips. And so the question arouses in Adam the conviction of his sin. And let me pause here just a moment and make this observation with all of us. From the standpoint of the wickedness and meanness and evil that we see in the world around about us, what Adam and Eve did seems very minor and insignificant, doesn't it? They ate a piece of fruit. 
but it was sufficient to cost them fellowship with God, at least in the way they had enjoyed it prior to this. One of the efforts the devil will make for me and for you is, as I mentioned a moment ago, for us to look at our sin and see it as being lesser in comparison to what everybody else does. But it only took one sin to cause Adam and Eve to, leave, to lose the right and the privilege of living in the Garden of Eden and having access to the Tree of Life. And it was a sin in comparison to the sins of other people from a human standpoint was a very minor thing. I mentioned this morning, go back to Matthew 7, 21-23, the text that we use for our Bible class. And in verse 23, when Jesus responds to those that said, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, and your name cast out demons, and your name done many marvelous works, verse 22, his answer is, I never knew you, depart from me. Now watch, ye that work iniquity. How many people do you know that would call, claiming to be able to cast out demons, to prophesy, to do marvelous works. How many people do you know in the world today that would call that iniquity? But the Lord does and He will. Because it is not His will that they were doing. Religious? Yes. Righteous? No. And so the question asked Adam, where art thou? But I want you to notice in the third place, <clears throat> it is a question that is a grief-filled question. Now, it is appropriate for us, we're not going to do it this morning or this afternoon, but it is appropriate for us in studying through Genesis 3 to think about what Adam and Eve lost when they were cast out of the Garden of Eden. That has a place and it's profitable. But have you ever thought about what God lost when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden? No more could God, because of the holiness of His character, because of His just nature, righteous nature, no more could God go in and treat Adam and Eve as if they'd never sinned. God lost something in the Garden of Eden, folks. And the only way that I know of to try to envision and imagine what is involved from the divine side is to think about it from this standpoint. Those of you that have grown children now, do you ever miss the days when those children were small? They could come into your den or living room or bedroom and crawl up in your lap or crawl up beside you. And though at the time, if you were like me and many others, maybe you didn't, you enjoyed it, but you sort of took it for granted. You missed those days. I think that's one of the reasons why we enjoy grandchildren so much, isn't it? We hold them and we hug them. We love to hear them call our name, whatever they call us. Because it takes us back and reminds us of the preciousness of those little children. And God lost that, if you will. It's a grief-filled question. Adam, where art thou? 
Ephesians 4 and verse 30, Paul implores the church at Ephesus, Grieve not the Holy Spirit. In Psalm 78 and verse 40, the psalmist, and rehearsing the history of Israel, says concerning those that came out of Egyptian bondage, how oft they provoked the Lord to anger and grieved Him in the desert. And the word grieved there in that verse comes from a word that means to pain, to trouble. You come over to Psalms 95 verse 10 and he says, Forty long years was I grieved with that generation and swear in my wrath they shall not enter into my rest. The word grieved there is from a different word. It means to detest. But you see, here is God looking down upon his chosen people, in this case the Israelites, whom he redeemed out of Egypt, the Bible says, with a mighty hand. And yet their love and faith was, was so shallow and short-lived as to murmur and complain and grumble and to grieve, to provoke God. And that's what sin does. Whenever you and I sin, we break God's heart. Just like parents are broken hearted, sometimes to a severer degree than others, but broken hearted when our children sin against us and disappoint us. And just like we did to our parents, by the way. Our sin to a greater degree because of God's holy character and nature breaks his heart. So when he came to the Garden of Eden that day, he knew where Adam and Eve was at. He wasn't looking for them. He wanted them to realize where they were. But the question that he asked that occasion was also a grief-filled question, for God has lost something there. And it will not be until eternity that it is regained, where we'll live in a place where there'll be no more sin, and nor anything that defiles be able to enter into heaven. But then notice that that question is a seeking question in the sense that God took the initiative. Now, perhaps we could argue and suggest that it should have been the case that when Adam and Eve sinned, they should have gone running looking for God to find out what to do about the, the dilemma in which they're now in. But they do not. And again, we have no way of knowing how much time passed between the actual sin and the coming of God into the garden. But God comes looking for Adam and Eve, as it were. Not again, again, not because they, he didn't know where they were. They were lost, but not in the sense that God didn't know where they were. But God took the initiative to come and find Adam and Eve. And that's shown again throughout the Bible. In Luke chapter 15, as Jesus began to respond to those scribes and Pharisees that were critical of him because he was eating with publicans and sinners, he begins in verse 4 by saying, What, what man of you having an hundred sheep in the wilderness, if he loses one, doth not leave the ninety and nine and go and seek for the one that is lost until he find it? 
And throughout that parable, throughout that chapter, some consider that chapter to be one parable with three parts. We generally study it as three different parables, and that may be right as well. It makes little difference. But throughout that chapter, Jesus is trying to show the care and the concern that God has for the lost. And so like a shepherd with one sheep out of a hundred lost, he goes to find that one. He's interested in one. Like the woman who loses seven, one coin of the seven, she sweeps that house searching for that which is precious to her. One is just as precious as the other six. And like that father whose younger son goes off to waste his substance in riotous living, he doesn't go to the far country to get him because unlike sheep and coins, people have to want to come home. But when the son does return, the father's looking for him, isn't he? Because as Jesus tells that parable, the father sees him when he is yet a great way off and he runs to meet the son and falls upon him and kisses him. And there's the interest and concern that God has. In Luke 19.10, Jesus said, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. He takes the initiative. In Romans 5, verses 6 to 8, Paul said, verse 8 especially, God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 4 and verse 10, John said, Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. Friends, if I and you can nurture and develop and cultivate our love for God to the highest possible degree, we will never be doing any more than responding to God's love for us. He loved us first. And this is one of the sad situations in life. Now, I know that I'm in all likelihood talking to what we would call the cream of the crop. But here's one of the sad situations in life. To think of men and women who have obeyed the gospel and who you would expect to know at least a little bit of something about the love of God and yet to love God so little. You know, that's one of the reasons why you can't get people out for gospel meetings through the weeknight, why some members of congregations won't come for Bible study, show up at the 10.30 hour for worship, but can't make it back on Sunday night or Wednesday night or Sunday afternoon. They don't have much love for God. And yet if you think about it, and if you will dwell on it, and think about how much God loved us. And yet I know John 3.16, the golden text of the Bible as it's called, emphasizes the love God has for the whole world. Galatians 2 and verse 20 emphasizes God, the love that God has for you and me individually. Paul said, I'm now crucified with Christ, yet it's not I that liveth, but Christ that liveth in me. And the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me 
and gave himself for me. I, Paul, I thought he died for, tasted death for every man. Hebrews 2.9. Oh, he did. I thought he died for the whole sins of the whole world. He did. And he also died for the sins of each and every individual. That's you. And that's me. May I ask the question this afternoon, how much do you love him back? How much? Do you love him more than anything or anybody in this world? And if not, why not? Why not? But last of all, I want you to think about the fact that that question is what we might call a summoning question. Now, I've never received a summons to court. Well, I, I take that back. One time to appear for jury duty. I didn't get picked, which was broke my heart. <laughs> but uh, I did get summoned one time to, to appear to, to, for jury duty. I took that pretty seriously. I was fairly certain if I didn't show up, they'd send somebody to come and remind me that I was supposed to have been there. Now God comes and says, Adam, where art thou? And that question was not to find out where Adam is, but in essence, it is a call to Adam that says, Adam, as my daddy used to say, come on out and get your whipping. It's time to deal with this. Whether they had been several minutes or several hours that have passed between the time they've eaten that forbidden fruit and the Lord comes, the summons comes for judgment. God told Adam and Eve, in the day you eat thereof, you'll surely die. In Genesis chapter 4 shows that they did. Not immediately, but they did. Romans 5 and verse 12, As by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul said, As in Adam all die. Now we do not die spiritually. The prophet Ezekiel, God through that prophet said, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Ezekiel 18 and about verse 4 and again about verse 20. I don't bear the guilt of Adam's sin, but I do bear the consequence in that I die physically. But I also die, I would die physically because of my own sins, for that matter. But as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 isn't talking about spiritual life there, but talking about coming out of the grave, as the context of 1 Corinthians 15 deals especially with the resurrection. Everybody's going to die, but everybody's going to be raised. John 5, 28 and 29. All that are in the grave will hear his voice and come forth. They that have done good unto everlasting life, and they that have done evil unto everlasting judgment or condemnation. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6, 23. And sooner or later, we're going to be summoned to give an account for ourselves. Romans 14, 12. Every one of us will give an account of himself to God. You know, in the world in which we live, there are folks that do a lot of accounting for others. But on the day of judgment, the only one for whom I must give account is myself. Now certainly part of that will be my influence upon others for good or bad. But I'm going to give an account of myself. 
You won't be there to help me, to argue for me or against me, and neither will anybody else. I'll give an account of myself to God. One day that summons comes for all of us, the day of judgment. Adam, the Lord called out to him, where art thou? He needed to stop and look and think about where he was. Have you done that lately? Have you thought about where you are spiritually in your relationship with God? And if you make that step into eternity today, where you will be forever and ever and ever without end. As you live, so shall you die. As you die, so shall you be raised. As you're raised, so shall you be in the judgment. And as you are in the judgment, so shall you be in eternity. You're not, and I'm not going to live in the flesh and be raised up unto everlasting life. Galatians 6, 7, and 8. God isn't mocked. We're going to reap what we sow. Where are we? Where are you? And if in thinking about that, you realize and know today that you are in sin and not in Christ, faithful. Will you be mindful of how that breaks God's heart? In 2 Corinthians 7.10, will you let that godly sorrow work repentance not to be repented of as opposed to the sorrow of the world that works death? Will you turn away from that sin? in that repentance, knowing that Christ came seeking you that you might be saved. Will you answer heaven's call today sent out through the gospel to obey the gospel? If you need to be baptized, won't you come and do that? It only takes a few minutes and yet it alters your eternal destiny as you abide faithful in Christ. And if you have done that and haven't abided faithful, the Bible teaches that somehow, some way, it's going to be worse for the unfaithful child of God in the day of judgment in eternity than it will be for those who never obeyed the gospel. Second Peter 2, 20. If after we have escaped the pollutions of the world through lust, through the, uh, the pollutions of the world through lust, through the knowledge of the, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and we're again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse than the beginning. Peter says it would have been better for them not to have known the way of salvation than after knowing it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. How could it be better not to have known? I don't know altogether. Except to know this, if I'm lost for all eternity, I will be tormented with the realization I'm not supposed to be here. This isn't where I was bound. This was not at one time my eternal destiny. I'd escaped this. And the physical torment and agony will be magnified by the emotional torment and agony of knowing that that's not where I was supposed to be. If you know you're in that condition today, won't you do something about it? Repent of the life you've been living. Let brethren pray with you and pray for you. Won't you do that? The Lord asks, where art thou? Where are you this afternoon?
If you need to respond to heaven's call, won't you do it while together we stand and sing?